This is Dialogue on Teaching. I am Nancy Lynn Westfield, Director of the Wabash Center. And of course, in our engineer's booth is Dr. Paul Myrie. It is my express pleasure to welcome to our show today, Reverend Dr. Dory Baker. Uh, Dory is a senior fellow at the Forum for Theological Exploration in Atlanta, Georgia. She's also a co-author of a brand new book that we will get to in our conversation. Uh, the name of the book is Another Way, Living and Leading Change on Purpose. She is co-authored with Stephen Lewis, Matthew Wesley Williams, um, and it is it is their triple baby. It is their baby from, from the triple parents, the triple authors. Um, so another way, living and leading change on purpose. Welcome to the show, Dory. Hi, I'm so happy to be here. So let's just, just start our conversation. To, um, situate your work and your perspective um, with what's going on now. How do you, how do you see your vocation, um, particularly given the uprise um, and all that is happening with the triple pandemic in the country right now? Give us a little bit about your own background. Well, first of all, Lynn, thank you very much for inviting me to be here. I am a big fan of these podcasts. They've been a great contribution. In the last, in recent months, so I'm really very glad to be here. So I'd, I'd like to start with just a little personal story for context. I grew up in rural Florida. I was not raised an observant Christian. Um, I was a cultural Christian. You know, it was the water I swam in. When I actually became a Christian at the age of 15, I, I did so because I was tagging along to a Baptist church after a sleepover at a girlfriend's house, and. In retrospect, I realized that the kind of Christian I became was a supremacist Christian. I never would have named it at that time in that way. I come to realize that uh, the Christianity in rural Florida where I was growing up was thoroughly swimming in um, white culture. And up until a few years ago, I thought about the word white supremacist or the phrase white supremacist only as describing extremists, like the ones who organized terror and carried their tiki torches um, on the grounds of the University of Virginia in 2017. But I, re I remember the moment about a year later when, I, when the words white supremacy came out of my mouth to describe the very systems that we lived in and how it's baked into everything. Now that I, now I see those words as accurately describing the very structure of the institutions that sustain me, and more, important, more importantly, white supremacy is the very reason that black lives are at risk every day. That's a shift in naming for which I'm grateful, and it sets the context for the work that I think we do in theological education as culture shapers. So my context is that Actions matter, words matter, ideas matter, because all of these create culture. And we are in the need of a reimagined culture. That begins with telling the truth about the culture of white supremacy. In, in your work at the forum um, with leaders, right? So one of the things that um, your book, Another Way, is about, one of the that's deeply entrenched in your work is this notion of design, this notion of change this notion of how things are is not how they have to be, right? So um, you and your co-authors attribute that change to imagination, right? And we need, to, we need to have the imagination to make these changes. Talk to us about how vocation and imagination are so wedded together. Oh, wow. 
That's a beautiful question. Thank you. Um, for me, the work begins, to paraphrase Alice Walker in The Color Purple, the work of scraping the white male image of God off our eyeballs. That is my work. Uh, that is, I believe, all of our work in Christianity in America today. So theological education shaped the culture that I was born and raised in. It shaped the culture that I uh, get to uh, take part in that sustains me. And it, and, it, and it needs to change. It must. And I believe theological education can shape a better culture. We have what it takes. We have stories, novels, sermons, treatises, dreams, poetry, theater, letters, lyrics, hermeneutics, liturgies, theologies, dances, and living human documents of Black cultural creatives that can shift the gaze of all of our distinct theological fields in ways that decenter whiteness. It needs to happen. It needs to happen in and beyond theological education, in our syllabi, in our institutions of higher education, in our streets, our schools, and every layer of government. So my starting places are theological education through my work nationally and professionally at FTE, where we are about the work of designing a better future, a future in which we all can flourish. And that takes this discreet and concerted effort at, at understanding the history and the truths of our nation and its birth and the way that it has been so tragically lopsided in creating pathways. That, that, that's such an understatement. So, so yeah, I'm about imagining another way and I, and, I, and I do that nationally. My vocation is centered around that through FTE, but I also feel these days that it's really important to be imagining the world anew from the ground up. And so I, I work locally with people who are reimagining, reimagining education. And I do that through an organization called the Children's Defense Fund Freedom Schools. Do you know about the Freedom Schools? Absolutely, yes. And um, so that helps me imagine from the ground up what the world would look like if children were given access to their history, given access to the history of the agency of their people, the creativity of their people from, from K, from kindergarten on. So I believe there's top-down culture shifting that goes on in places like theological education and higher education in general. And that's a culture that needs reshaping. And we also reimagine and redesign class, classrooms from, from the ground up with our children. So one of, the, one of the pillars of racism, right? One of the ways racism white nationalism, white supremacy functions in our society um, is through the tenets of miseducation that uh, it truncates imagination, the very tool that you're saying access, imagination. Racism requires that white people not imagine the world any differently than it currently is. Racism is also, a pillar of racism is also that people don't understand the history of race, the history of racism, the history of white nationalism in this country. So without, to be ahistorical and then to have no imagination keeps us rooted in these racist um, daily expressions of life. Mm -hmm. And yet you're calling for, even in the midst of that, radical change. How do you put those things together? Oh, I think that the, the key is practices. Mm. Practices. So where, where, 
practices that open the imagination. And there's so many amazing scholars who are doing this work. I'll name just a few. I'm thinking of Dr. Karen Mosby, who's doing beautiful exegesis of hip hop in the field of religious education. I'm thinking of Dr. Montague Williams, who's writing about reimagining the Eucharist collectively with young people as he made a very mindful pilgrimage with them to Canfield Drive, the very site where Michael Brown's murder occurred. So designing for creative religious education, designing for theological education that frees us from the institutional structures of what we think has to happen in the classroom and what can instead happen in the classroom um, begins with practices. So in another way, we write about the fact that cultural change requires new default practices, practices that are counter to the norms and agreements that most of us are accustomed to abiding within, and practices that help us remember how to be human, practices that engage us in eye, making eye contact and truly seeing one another and honoring one another's presence. It's a little harder these days when everything is virtual, but not really. And now I'm looking at you, Lynn, <laughs> and realizing that your face is before me, and that is a gift of this moment. And to slow down and enjoy just being human together is a practice that beats back against the, the anemic, and as you said, just life-draining structures that we've been conditioned to accept as normal. So, so keep talking about the because it's still a contested notion, not so much with the people who listen to our podcast, but I always like to kind of venture into this topic. Theological education still is not sure it should get in the game of justice. Well, I want to tell a story about that. I love your idea of a class action lawsuit brought by white <laughs> seminary graduates, white seminary graduates against right. theological education for the miseducation of Christians in the United States. It's a brilliant strategy. But my story was different. I could not take part in your lawsuit because the seminary I attended on a wing and a prayer as a 22-year-old from rural Florida, I realized that my high school and college career as a journalist would ask me to stay objective. And that was not in the cards for me. So I ended up at Garrett Evangelical Theological Seminary in Evanston, Illinois, which was the same seminary where Dr. James Cohn had gotten his divinity degree a few decades earlier. And it was adjacent to the university where he got his PhD. When I was an MDiv student, Cohn's ethos still lived and breathed in those hallways. My colleagues were diverse black seminary students from across Chicago and beyond. And also um, those who were drawn by Rosemary Radford Ruther, a leading white feminist scholar who was similarly attracting women who were hell-bent on dismantling patriarchy. There was nothing neutral about my education, although it might have pretended at that time to be. But it gets even better. When I came back to get my PhD at the same adjacent university Cone attended, Northwestern University, womanist thought was emerging. Dr. Emily Towns was just a few years ahead of me. Dr. Evelyn Parker was, was there at the same time as I was. Womanist thought now lived and breathed in the hallways and over our shared meals and our walks back and forth from seminary housing to the classroom. Because I had not been raised a Christian and was somewhat queerly called to theology and ministry anyway out of journalism, 
the institution that might have miseducated me instead planted in me the seeds of resistance to white supremacy. That's nice. That's nice. That is my story. So education matters, right? So, (laughs) I mean, being exposed to learning to interrogate, learning to include uh, the stories of African-American people, the stories of oppressed people, um, excuse me, learning to use those stories as tools for other activities, other practices, as you say, of, just, of justice, of teaching toward justice, makes all the difference that, that learners can be shaped, learners can be formed, not just misformed, but actually formed mm-hmm. into doing this work and work that the society at large desperately needs. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And I'm not sure about, I mean, I have my theory of change, um, and the way change happens, and it's not really incremental for me, um, you know, that culture change happens when communities of practice begin to build up their muscle to a point where they can teach others. And womanists are a perfect example of that. You know, womanist scholars kind of, this isn't working for me. Black liberation theology isn't working for me. White feminist theology never worked for me. So, so we formed these loose networks or, or women has formed these loose networks. And then they began to establish themselves to the point where they're, you know, a community of practice and they're hosting sessions at AAR. And, you know, and now they are a field in and of themselves where, where people can learn and listen and they don't have to do all of that journey themselves. A young black woman doesn't have to do that whole journey herself today. She just has to be made aware of it and given access to it. And I can't tell you how many times I've heard young people say, oh, I wish I'd run into Mujerista theology years ago. How come that I'm reading Ara Maria Sassitias for the first time at the age of 23? How come I didn't have it at 18? It's my life. Or, or a black male scholar saying, you know, he didn't get access to womanist theology until he was already at his MDiv program and what a lifesaver it was. He didn't know it was out there. He had been trained exclusively by white male mentors and he didn't know that this other world existed. So there's this gap, as we know, between theological education and, and the world. And I'm really excited when I see scholars like the ones I mentioned a moment ago, like busting that out bringing theological education to the streets and not bringing it so much as listening for it, noticing and lifting it up in all the places where it might happen. And, and so, so that's really, that's an exciting, it's an exciting time, I think. Um, when I was thinking about, you know, my seminary experience and the seminary experience I hope many others had in other little pockets, I think about a framework that's been helpful to me lately, which being written about by a Nigerian philosopher, Bio Akomalafe. He writes about fugitive spaces. He, he uses the metaphor of the dismal swamp, the land between Virginia and North Carolina where enslaved people escaped and created an alternative reality. Some people lived their whole lives there in a space that was outside of empire's reach And these kind of fugitive spaces give me hope because they can happen anywhere at any time when we find the right ingredients to think differently and imagine outside of the norms, the restrictions, the the imprisonments of our mind that racism has formed. So I mean, like like other womanist theologians, um, I don't think 
uh, womanist theology starts in the classrooms or with the brilliant people who write womanist theology. Um, it starts in the streets, it starts with our mothers, it starts with our grandmothers, and we just have the opportunity and privilege and burden to write it down mm-hmm. uh, and then teach it to people who are, who are beyond our communities. Um, but it, it feels to me like all that is going on in the protests and the rebellions now in the streets is a theology that will need to be one day written down but the Black Lives Matter folks know their theology, right? They, they are doing their theology. They're not, um, they're not concerned about guilds or, or classroom uh, texts as much as they are concerned about um, re, reigniting the notion that humanness is not an option, right? That, that being treated as a human being, as an African-American person, a black and brown body is not an option and it is to be demanded. So I guess I, I applaud your emphasis on the practices, realizing that practices ju- just don't live in a book somewhere in a very passive way, but those practices are what puts us in the places of formation and imagination um, as we make these claims on each other. Yes, and the practices, yes, it's just, you name it and you can live it. Sometimes it's the naming of them. You know, I wouldn't for a moment slow down an activist and say, let's reflect on what you did last night. (laughs) I wouldn't for a moment want to say, wait, wait, reflect. And then, then go do what you're called to do. I believe in that power of, of urgency. And I also believe that in order to um, grow and develop one's repertoire and become more strategic about where you place your efforts. Uh, Theological reflection is absolutely priceless to be able to sit with a group of others. And we write about this practice quite and what it means to to look back um, together on an action that we've taken together, historically embedded, look at the systems of power, the systems, um, the structures that were at place and critique them through the light of the gospel. That's a practice that we might be out of practice with. And so what the book does is name these four repeatable practices, which we did not invent, that we just, like you said, observed. And uh, I won't go into detail, but they are creating hospitable space where people can flourish. Mm-hmm. Asking self-awakening questions that go beyond the surface and allow us to dwell in uncertainty, reflecting theologically and critically together and then enacting the next most faithful step. So that as we're working particularly with young adults in vocation, we like to say, you don't have to have it all figured out. And certainly right now, there is no having it all figured out, right? There is only discerning what is the next most faithful step that carries me in the, in the direction that seems hopeful, that seems promising that seems justice oriented, but it might need to be revised tomorrow morning. So does it feel like this moment is different? I mean, for for white people to reimagine a less racist, not racist nation, is this moment different than other moments of rebellion? It feels different to me and it feels different to the people that I'm listening to. Mm -hmm. And what feels different for me as a white woman is that people I know who never tuned in before are tuning in now. And was it the, I think you called it a liturgy 
the liturgy, the work of the people when Lord Floyd was tortured, his work, his liturgy, his crying out, his prayer. Was it, was it that or was it the confluence of everything else was going on in our world at that time? But it feels to me like a lot of white people are doing the work and it feels important to me to be those of us who've been at it for a while to hold on to our beginner's minds and those of us who've been at it for a while to also just like throw lifelines out and bring people along even if they're just beginning it's especially important that white people do that for other white people so they stop burdening black people with that you know with that with those first steps and i think that's one thing i really like people to hear is that the work and and i'd love to have a conversation i'd love to hear you what you have to say about this lynn the work of black scholars and theological education just got a lot harder it was already a heavy burden because of the mentoring of black students and institutions where there's a huge diversity deficit in faculty and now they're being turned to to answer questions of their white students their white colleagues uh, like like probably at a level of never before and on top of that what feels different to me in this moment is there's impetus for further re further decentering our syllabi further decentering not just the reading lists but also the very ways in which we teach um, in these institutions that were designed for the flourishing of white people they weren't designed for the for the flourishing of brown and black bodies and so there's this moment right now where black faculty that i've been listening to feel inspired and hopeful but my question to white colleagues is how can we support that i think that's a great question that that needs multiple asking and answering. Mm -hmm. I think the, the tricky part about the flourishing of institutions for the flourishing of white people is that if that were all that they were, then it really wouldn't be a burden. The problem is the flourishing of white people in this country has always depended on the mm -hmm. bodies of black and brown people to support that flourishing. You're absolutely right. Yeah. So <laughs> we don't you know, as Black Lives Matter people, we don't disdain white people. We disdain the fact that white people depend on the bodies of black and brown people to be mutilated and killed for their wealth, for their, for their own worth, for their own dignity. And those things are not separable from a racist, white supremacist, white nationalist mentality. I also think, I'm not sure it's a particularly burdensome time for African-American people. I just think, um, who, who, who have agreed to do the work, anti-racist work in white institutions. To me, it just feels like another day in the life. But what if there is a change or a pivot, mm -hmm. um, it is the opportunity to say things like this. One of the things I've said where I'm working now is, please do not depend on African-American people to be experts in racism. We are victims of racism. Just like you would not ask a rape victim to be an expert in, in sexual violence. Please don't assume that all Black people can articulate and explain to you the politics and dynamics of racism. That it is like any other category of study, you have to have studied it. Because you've experienced it does not mean you're articulate about it. So stop asking Black folk about racism. Right. Find some experts, Black, white, and otherwise, on racism to have those conversations. And there are plenty of those experts out there. <laughs> That's right. They're not few and far between. There are plenty. There are plenty. And, and certainly with all the books and the resources and the pamphlets and the blogs and all those kinds of things. Um, so the, the, the question is not, 
uh, it feel, to me, it feels like this moment has pushed us past, should we do something, right? There, the, the collective decision has been made, with, regardless of whatever impetus, we should do something, right? The, now people are saying, well, what should we do? Whoever your we is, what should we do? Um, so as, as a person who very rightly and boldly, I think, you know, as out of a call, as a white woman who um, has taken on the mantle of assisting white people with their racism, right? That, that we need more, more folks who are doing the kind of work that you are doing from the, from the hermeneutical lens that you use, as well as from your, your own activist impulse, right? Those are all very positive things. Um, how do you help your people know what to do? Thank you for that question. And um, I wanna just say that I am not an expert. And while we just talked about many people who are experts in um, dismantling white supremacy and addressing the underlying causes of systemic racism, there are also just like a whole bunch of us others who've been doing this work and are now becoming more articulate about what we have done and sharing it from our own perspective. And I try to do that very humbly. I'd, I'd love to invite others on a learning journey. And first of all, I, I wanna say what our work is as white people is not to feel better. There will be embarrassment, cringing, sleepless nights. If you're journeying towards the racial, racial divide instead of ignoring it, our jobs are to listen more, take care, take care of ourselves and take care of each other so that we are capable of continuing to ask even harder and harder questions about our complicity. So the first thing I, I wanna say to myself and to my white colleagues is it's a long, long journey and we'll get used to the feelings of discomfort and we must get comfortable being at this crossroads and not feeling like we can turn the switch off and go back into another way of being. So I have a list and it's long, but so I'll just lift up a few, the first four, but I've been playing around with 10 or 12 ways white scholars like me can try to do the right thing in times like these. And the first one is read and then lift up black voices. Our students deserve this, we deserve this, but also when we do this, we're doing a favor to our white peers who are seeking Khaled Keith Perry audits his bookshelf a white sticker on each book written by a non-person of color. He does a similar audit of his syllabus each time he teaches. And I want to say to my friends, err on the side of too much representation by black indigenous people of color will be okay. The scales will not tip in the opposite direction. The second it's, is it's not to good be enough. Wait, 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 Dory, linger over that first point a little bit. It's not good enough Absolutely. to say, I don't know, right? We're researchers. Go find out. People of color, Black people have written about every question under the sun in every discipline and guild there is. Please don't Absolutely. say you can't find it. Talk to the librarian. <laughs> As an example, a friend of mine is um, preparing to teach her Foundations of Religious Education class in the fall. That syllabus has been entirely white because that guild was forming at the turn of the 20th century. The exact same time that W.E.B. Du Bois and Booker T. Washington were carrying on a national debate about the education of black people. So how do we include in the syllabus everything that was going on in the world outside of the institution that was so narrowly framed around what white academics were doing. 
talking about, you know, we're hearing the word burn it down so much in the streets these days. And I just keep thinking, we've got to burn it down within our syllabus, within our seminary, because there's so much more than, that our imagination needs access to. And if you can only continue to teach the way you were taught, why are you teaching? <laughs> right? <laughs> then we'll get the person who taught you to teach it. Right. right? So if, you, if you have nothing to add to the repertoire, nothing to add to the dimensions and the boundaries of the guild or the discipline, right? If it is so rigid, then we could just put it on a tape recorder, and I do mean Absolutely. tape recorder, on an eight track. <laughs> <laughs> and played in the intro classes. Right. So, and to my friend uh, who is a black woman, I, I, I wonder with her, how can, how can this work be supported? It's lots of work to rewrite a syllabus. So how can people who work for philanthropic organizations like we do, involved in theological education, create spaces for that work to be collective? Because it's you know, where black people can enjoy the fruit of their labors together as they, as they look at the black national anthem written in, we just learned 1899. If that's not a story of religious education, what is? But how can we support with finances and uh, collaborative learning spaces really support this blowing up of what the syllabus has been to be more reflective of what it could be? Well, and I just think scholars are ashamed to say, I don't know. Mm-hmm. We have to move the obstacle and the paralysis of, I am ashamed about what I don't know, and go find out some new stuff. Yep. That's my number 10 on my list. <laughs> <laughs> and, and it's a practice. Practice saying, I don't know. Mm-hmm. And practice saying, thank you. Mm-hmm. Um, some of us are lucky enough to be called out every once in a while on our internalized, still recovering from racism and white supremacy. When that happens, when a black person or another person of color is willing to spend energy sharing their experience with me in ways that might be taxing for them and ways that might be painful for me, I need to learn to say thank you mm-hmm. and trust their perspectives and let it dwell right there in my gut. Mm-hmm. Yes, right there. And that little moment of letting it dwell in my gut can serve as a reminder for what it's like to be living daily with the direct effects, those who are directly affected by racism, mm-hmm. systemic racism and white supremacy. That's true. Keep going down your list. All right, so number two, I'm trained as an ethnographer. And um, Zora Neale Hurston, Black Harlem Renaissance writer, is, is, you know, often claimed as the mother of ethnography. Mm-hmm. Ethnography is about holy listening. It can take many forms, the least recommended of which is asking a Black person to tell you about their experience if you don't already have uh, a relationship of mutuality and reciprocity. So that listening, as I said earlier, can can be to the already documented stories, novels, sermons, treatises, dreams, poetry, etc., of Black cultural creatives. And I suggest that we buy these new whenever possible. A third one for me is to align small personal lives with big, lofty values. So if I were not already 
involved with a Black-led nonprofit that addresses issues around education, healthcare, incarceration, or income disparity, I would do that. I would find that place and not just give my money to it, give my money to it, but not just give my money to it. Slowly and with great care and with holy listening, come alongside and learn how to be of support. It feels really helpful in my journey to have matched up my local values with my national professional values. And then fourth is go beyond naming the problems. And this one's really tricky because I think white people can get stuck at naming the problems. We're really good at it. Academics are especially good at it. And so I always wanna encourage people to get practical, get really practical. So for me, that has looked like attending my city council meetings, learning about defunding police, advocating for low-income housing near assets such as grocery stores, libraries, rivers, and parks. I'm also really interested in, and am doing this already, but I'm interested in learning more about how white churches could use their endowments, their huge endowments oftentimes, to create social equity investment funds for black entrepreneurs. If I were teaching in a seminary right now, I'd be finding partners in, in the business school adjacent uh, and co-constructing courses on reimagining a more equitable economy. The so Columbia Seminary, one of your neighbors. Yes. Your FTE neighbors, Columbia Seminary has done exactly that. Yes, yes, yes. And I want to know who else is doing that and lifting it up in all of its different varieties. I've noticed that Columbia has made tuition free for students of color, but I did not know that they were doing social equity work they have with their five, money, with their endowment. Strategy. That's right. They have a five-pong strategy. So, um, so Dory, what's at stake if, if, if all of us, particularly the oppressors, particularly white people, don't begin to take this stuff seriously, this white national, white supremacy seriously, what's at stake? What's at stake for theological education? What's at stake for, uh, let's just start with theological education. I've been learning a lot lately from Resma Menachem, mm -hmm. the author of My Grandmother's Hands, mm -hmm. who says to white people, if you don't, don't start dealing with your own racial trauma and wounds, our American bodies will continue to mutate into insanity and create even more brutality and genocide. So for me, that's what's at stake. Um, I, that's a dystopic future I don't want to inhabit. And when you think about it, it feels like it's already here. So we're dismantling dystopic reality that we are now seeing. We need to dismantle this reality that is now in plain sight. If it were hidden before, now you, you have to see it in all its brutality. So that's what's at stake. These are, I don't know, I, I, I'm created in the image of God. I believe all of us are created in the image of God. I'm a mom who raised two daughters who are now young adults, and their friends were my friends, and they're, 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 the mothers of those friends are my tribe. And I think about those children as my children too. Those children, I mean, I'm, I know I don't feel it in the same visceral reality, but when 
a young man on a Friday night to go home or two o'clock on a Friday night to go home after hanging out with his friends, I worry for him. My, these children are all of our children if we live in a big enough universe to acknowledge our connections. So our very humanity is at stake. Another thing I think about when I think about what's at stake goes back to this idea of diminished imagination. And I write and think and talk a lot about vocation, helping young people find meaning and purpose. Most of the books that show up in the genre on vocation come out of a very small stream of thought and, and it's white and it's European centric. And about six years ago, I was at a large national gathering of campus ministry ministers where we heard a lecture on vocation from a white Roman Catholic expert in the field. It was a predominantly white crowd and the discussion that followed the Q&A centered whiteness. But when that discussion ended, two friends came up to me at the same time. One of them was a black man from Virginia who said, didn't Matt Turner have a vocation? And another was a black woman from Oklahoma who said, didn't Sojourner Truth have a vocation? And it was a light switch moment for me. From then on, I couldn't get it out of my head how inadequately white and European-centric the genre of vocational literature was. That's a little niche where I live. Where I live. Um, Marlon Hall is, a, is a, a pastor and innovator who says, whatever pisses you off, that's where your vocation is. And this, all of a sudden, I got pissed off. And, and so then I started thinking about how, with the power and the privilege and the positionality that I have, do I, do I just work within this niche to do the right thing? So, so I, can I keep telling the story? Do you want to talk please, back to this? Okay. The story is that about three months after the murder of Michael Brown, um, I became aware that Dr. Leah Francis Gunning, who was teaching in St. Louis at the time, was also, of course, on the ground in the protests around Ferguson, Missouri. Uh, Leah and I were colleagues in our PhD work together, and so I knew that her dissertation was about raising black boys in America. And, and I just started to wonder with her, what would it be like if you wrote about your experiences on the street in Ferguson with a lens toward how young people's vocations were being sparked under the mentorship of people like Reverend Starsky Wilson and Reverend Tracy Blackman. And so she did that amazingly. The book came out on the first anniversary of Michael Brown's murder, uh, Ferguson and Faith. And that was the first in a series of books that FTE has sponsored with Chalice Press to kind of blow open the genre of vocation literature to be more reflective of black and brown bodies. Mm-hmm. Next came Dr. Pat Reyes's book, Nobody Cries When We Die, which I highly recommend. Our book is in that series. And this summer, well, next, later this month, um, I'll be gathering with 12 writers at the Collegeville Institute to be thinking about Gustavo Gonzalez's theme of drawing from our own deep wells. We'll be writing about vocation across race and class. So what's at stake in that work is that there might be another Pat Reyes, there might be a Leah Gunning, there might be, a, a, I spoke yesterday with a girl, a woman whose name is Maria, who's a community organizer in the 
Latinx population in Chicago, there might be a Maria who's 10 or 15 or 20 years younger who never sees their face reflected on the back of that book and who never knows that this is a path that they can follow. And that's important to me. The practices on the street are important and the, then documenting it for future generations so other people have shoulders to stand on matters. Writing books still matters, especially for black and brown people. Uh, Reverend Dr. Dory Baker, uh, co-author of Another Way, Living and Leading Change on Purpose. Uh, our co-authors are Stephen Lewis and Matthew Wesley Williams. Thank you, Dory, so much for this conversation. It has been uh, insightful and enriching. I appreciate you. Thank you. Lynn, it's been a pleasure. Thank you very much. And we're out. How was that, Paul? Mm-hmm.